0: Chapter thirty nine of Colonel Quaritch V. C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch V. C. by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter thirty nine. The Colonel Goes to Sleep. The condition of mind which could induce a peaceable, Christian natured individual who had, moreover, in the course of his career, been mixed up with enough bloodshed to have acquired a thorough horror of it, to offer to fight a duel is difficult to picture. Yet this condition has been reached by Harold Quaritch. Edward Cossey had wisely enough declined to entertain the idea, but the colonel had been perfectly in earnest about it. Odd as it may appear, in the latter end of this nineteenth century, nothing would have given him greater pleasure than to pit his life against that of his unworthy rival. Of course it was foolish and wrong, but human nature is the same in all ages, and in the last extremity we fall back by instinct on those methods which men have, from the beginning, adopted to save themselves from intolerable wrong and dishonour, or, be it admitted, to bring the same upon others. But cosy utterly declined to fight. As he said, he had had enough of being shot, and so there was an end of it. Indeed, in after days the colonel frequently looked back upon this episode in his career, with shame not unmingled with amusement, reflecting, when he did so, on the strange potency of that passion which can bring men to seriously entertain the idea of such extravagances. Well, there was nothing more to be done. He might, it is true, have seen Ida, and working upon her love and natural inclinations, have tried to persuade her to cut the knot by marrying him off-hand. Perhaps he would have succeeded, for in such affairs women are apt to find. The arguments advanced by their lovers, weighty and well worthy of consideration. But he was not the man to adopt such a course. He did the only thing that he could do, answered her letter, by saying that what must be, must be. He had learned that on the day, subsequent to his interview with his rival, The squire had written to Edward Cossey, informing him that a decided answer would be given to him on Christmas Day, and thereon all vexatious proceedings on the part of that gentleman's lawyers had been stayed for the time. He could now no longer doubt what the answer would be. There was only one way out of trouble, the way that Ida had made up her mind to adopt. So he set out to work to make his preparations for leaving Honham and the country for good and all. He wrote to land agents and put molehill upon their books to be sold or let on lease and also to various influential friends to obtain introductions to the leading men in New Zealand. But these matters did not take up all his time and the rest of it hung heavily on his hands. He mooned about the place until he was tired. He tried to occupy himself in his garden but it is weary work sowing crops for strange hands to reap and so he gave it up. "'Somehow, the time wore on until at last it was Christmas Eve, "'the eve, too, of the fatal day of Ida's decision. "'He dined alone that night as usual, "'and shortly after dinner some waits came to the house "'and began to sing their cheerful carols outside. "'The carols did not chime in at all well, "'with his condition of mind, "'and he sent five shillings out to them "'with a request that they would go away, "'as he had a headache. "'Accordingly they went.' and shortly after their departure the great gale for which that night is still famous began to rise then he fell to pacing up and down the quaint old oak-panelled parlour thinking until his brain ached the hour was at hand the evil was upon him and her whom he loved was there no way out of it no possible way alas there was but one way and that a golden one but where was the money to come from he had it not and as land stood it was impossible to raise it ah if only that great treasure which old sir james de la mole had hid away and died rather than reveal could be brought to light now in the hour of his house's sorest need but the treasure was very mythical and if it had ever really existed it was not now to be found he went to his dispatch box and took from it the copy he had made of the entry in the bible which had been in Sir James's pocket when he was murdered in the courtyard. The whole story was a very strange one. Why did the brave old man wish that his Bible should be sent to his son, and why did he write that somewhat peculiar message in it? Suppose that Ida was right, and that it contained a cipher or cryptograph which would give a clue to the whereabouts of the treasure. If so, it was obvious that it would be one of the simplest nature." a man confined by himself in a dungeon and under immediate sentence of death would not have been likely to pause to invent anything complicated. It would indeed be curious that he should have invented anything at all under such circumstances, and when he could have so little hope that the riddle would be solved. But, on the other hand, his position was desperate. He was quite surrounded by foes, there is no chance of him being able to convey the secret in any other way, and he might have done so. Harold placed the piece of paper upon the mantelpiece, and sitting down in an armchair opposite, began to contemplate it earnestly, as indeed he had often done before. In case the reader should not remember its exact wording, it is repeated here. It ran. Do not grieve for me, Edward. My son, that I am thus suddenly and wickedly done to death by rebel murderers, for naught happened but according to God's will. And now farewell, Edward, till we meet in heaven. My monies have I hid, and on account thereof I die unto this world, knowing that not one piece shall Cromwell touch, to whom God shall appoint, shall all my treasure be, for naught can I communicate. Well, Harold stared and stared at this inscription, He read it forward, backward, crosswise, and in every other way, but absolutely without result. At last, wearied out with misery of mind and the pursuit of a futile occupation, he dropped off sound asleep in his chair. That happened about a quarter to eleven o'clock. The next thing he knew was that he suddenly woke up. Woke up completely, passing as quickly from a condition of deep sleep to one of wakefulness as though he had never shut his eyes. He used to say afterward that he felt as though somebody had come and aroused him. It was not like a natural waking. Indeed, so unaccustomed was the sensation that for a moment the idea flashed through his brain that he had died in his sleep and was now awakened to a new state of existence. This soon passed, however. Evidently, he must have slept for some time, for the lamp was out and the fire dying. He got up and hunted about in the dark for some matches, which at last he found. He struck a light, standing exactly opposite to the bit of paper with the copy of Sir James de la Mole's dying message on it. This message was neatly copied longwise upon a half-sheet of large writing-paper, such as the squire generally used. Its first line ran as it was copied. "'Do not grieve for me, Edward, my son, that I am thus suddenly and wickedly done.' Now, as the match burnt up, by some curious chance, connected probably with the darkness and the sudden striking of the light upon his eyeballs, it came to pass that Harold, happening to glance thereon, was only able to read four letters of the first line of writing, with all the rest seeming to him but as a blur, connecting those four letters. They were D-E-A-D being respectively the initial letters of the first the sixth the eleventh and the sixteenth word of the line given above the match burned out and he began to hunt about for another d e a d he said aloud repeating the letters almost automatically why it spells dead that is rather curious something about this accidental spelling awakened his interest very sharply it was an odd coincidence He lit some candles and hurriedly examined the line. The first thing that struck him was that the four letters which went to make up the word dead were about equidistant in the line of writing. Could it be? He hurriedly counted the words in the line. There were sixteen of them. That is, after the first, one of the letters occurred at the commencement of every fifth word. This was certainly curious. Trembling with nervousness, He took a pencil and wrote down the initial letter of every fifth word in the message thus, D. Do not grieve for me, E. Edward, my son, that I, A. am thus suddenly and wickedly, D. done to death, by rebel M. murderers, for not happeneth but, A. according to God's will, and N. Now farewell, Edward, till we, S. shall meet in heaven. My M., moneys have I hid, and, O, oh, on account thereof I die, you unto this world, knowing that, N, not one piece shall Cromwell, T, touch. To whom God shall, A, appoint, shall all my treasures, B, B. for naught can I, C, communicate. When he had done, he wrote these initials in a line, D, E, A, D, M, A, N, S, M-O-U-N-T-A-B-C Dead Man's Mount, A-B-C Great Heaven! He had hit upon the reading of the riddle. The answer was Dead Man's Mount, followed by the mysterious letters A-B-C. Breathless with excitement, he checked the letters again to see if by any chance he had made an error. No, it was perfectly correct. Dead Man's Mount that was and had been for centuries the name of the curious tumulus or mound in his own back garden, the same that learned antiquarians had discussed the origin of so fiercely, and that his aunt, the late Mrs. Massey, had at the cost of two hundred and fifty pounds erected a mushroom-shaped roof over in order to prove that the hollow in the top had once been the agreeable country seat of an ancient British family could it then be but a coincidence that after the first word the initial of every fifth word in the message should spell out the name of this remarkable place or was it so arranged he sat down to think it over trembling like a frightened child obviously it was no accident obviously the prisoner of more than two centuries ago had in his helplessness invented this simple cryptograph in the hope that his son or if not his son some one of his descendants, would discover it, and thereby become the master of the hidden wealth. What place would be more likely for the old knight to have chosen to secret the gold than one that even in those days had the uncanny reputation of being haunted? Who would ever think of looking for modern treasure in the burying place of the ancient dead? In those days, too, Molehill, or Dead Man's Mount, belonged to the de la Mole family, who had reacquired it on the break-up of the abbey. It was only at the restoration, when the Dofferly branch came into possession under the will of the second and last baronet, Sir Edward de la Mole, who died in exile, that they failed to recover this portion of the property. And if so, and Sir James, the murdered man, had buried his treasure in the mount, what did the mysterious letters ABC mean? were they perhaps directions as to the line to be taken to discover it harold could not imagine nor as a matter of fact did he or anybody else find out this either then or thereafter ida indeed used afterward to laughingly declare that the old sir james meant to indicate that he considered the whole thing as plain as a b c but that was an explanation which did not commend itself to harold's practical mind End of chapter 39